0: All right, so here in John chapter seven, we're we're at the feast of booths. Remember that uh, the feast of tabernacles, and we talked about what that was. That it's the the, the, the feast of celebration, remembering God's provision uh, for the the saints back in the wilderness when He provided manna and water uh, to them on a daily basis to help them uh, to, to to maintain their life, to help them survive in the midst of that, and so they. During the Feast of booze, each family or each person even sets up, up sort of a little lean-to, a little booth, a little shed. And they live in that shed throughout the feast to remind them of how the, the, the Israelites in the wilderness lived in tents and, and lean-to's in a sense in their journey through the wilderness. We also talked about how this feast always takes place at the end of the harvest season, in late September, early October. And so it's a feast that celebrates not just God's provision historically, but even God's provision in that season, celebrating the end of the harvest and all the things that God has done. And so of all the feasts of Israel, this one's the great party. This is where everyone gets together. They're in high spirits. Their hard labor is done. They're ready to relax a little bit and have a good time. Um, So Jesus, in the midst of this, has come into the temple... And the, the the practice there in those days was in the large temple complex. Various teachers would kind of occupy spaces there in the corners and areas of the temple. And people would just gather around them and hear them teach. And so Jesus hasn't made a huge show of anything, but he's shown up at the temple, and he's kind of taken up a teaching post. And so people are starting to gather and listen to him teach. Uh, and last week we saw that the crowd had marveled at his teaching because... Uh, He had no training he had not been trained in the sense that they were used to in one of the schools of the famous rabbis So almost all the trainers all the teachers in the temple would be coming from some school of theology some seminary of sorts We might call it and so they have the recommendation or the philosophy of some teacher attached to them And so they would put forth that theology and that training and that teaching well, Jesus doesn't do any of that Jesus shows up in his teaching as one who has all wisdom but hasn't been trained in that. And so where did his wisdom come from? And so they marveled at that. And of course, last week he told them that his, his, you know, his wisdom doesn't come from man, but it comes from God who sent him. We kind of pick up on that same theme this morning as Jesus is still here at the temple teaching and we hear some more of his teaching and we see some more of the events going on kind of around uh, what he's saying and doing and what the ramifications of that are. So I'm going to read from John chapter 7, uh, verse 25 down through... Uh, Thirty-six. Give great attention to the reading, the very word of God. Uh, He says, some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. And you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for for this day and for our time together. I pray that as we come before your word you would give us hearts that are open, ears and eyes to, to see and believe and know the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us understand what it means when you say that you have come from him, that God has sent you. And help us to rejoice that that what you have come to do is save us from our sins, from the penalty of our sins, that we might have life with you now, abundantly, and everlastingly. It's in your sons, it's in your glorious name that we pray. Amen. All right, so the question here is kind of formed, There's the issues here are kind of formed in two things. Where does Jesus come from, and then where is he going? He talks about both these things. Now, the crowd that's kind of gathered here in this temple. The part that John refers to today has been, me think last week he kind of referred to the crowds in general many of whom had trans who had been, you know, who had, had are coming to visit Jerusalem for the feast. But here it says that the, some of the people of Jerusalem, so these are local people and we'll talk about what that means a minute. but these seem to be kind of local Jerusalemites that have gathered and are, are responding to what Jesus is saying now and so it takes on a little different strain here. And so, but what we know is that the Jewish leaders here had been seeking to kill Jesus. Their word was out that they were going to arrest him, that they were seeking to kill him because he was a blasphemer. He was claiming to be the Messiah. He's clearly not the Messiah in their eyes. And so they're going to kill him. But that hasn't happened yet. He hasn't even been arrested. And so what's happened is... The people have started to say, well, maybe they figured out he's actually the Messiah. That's why they're not going after him. He's right here in the temple teaching. Why are they not arresting him? They've been saying they're going to arrest him. They aren't doing it. Maybe they figured out he's actually the Messiah. So that's the kind of muttering and the rumors that are going around amongst this crowd. And so they start asking each other, could it be? But they decide, no, there's no way this guy's the Messiah because this man is from Galilee. And we know that the Messiah is not going to come from Galilee. Now, there were two schools, of, there was two views in amongst the Jews about where the Messiah would come from. Some understood, as we do from the scriptures, that he would come from Bethlehem, which we know is true. Others believed that it was impossible to know where the Messiah would come from, partly because they kind of believed that he would just kind of show up out of nowhere and take over the place. And so there were these two schools. But no one thought he's going to come out of Nazareth. He's going to come out of Galilee. But we know he was born in Jerusalem and And was raised in Galilee. Now, Jesus could have cleared this up. He could have just stood before them and said, sure, I was raised in Nazareth and Galilee, but I was born in Bethlehem. I am your Messiah. But he doesn't do that either. His time has not yet come. And so what he says is, you know me and you know where I come from. Now, most of the commentators say that what he's saying there is kind of filled with irony. There should probably be an exclamation point or a question mark at the end of that because what he's doing is he's actually saying, you really think you know where I'm from? And he's essentially saying, you don't know anything about me. You're acting like you're the authority on me, but you don't even know where I came from. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. Yes, but you don't know me. But the bigger issue here, he goes on to make, point out that the more significant issue is that his origin actually predates and outshines either Galilee or Bethlehem or any other place on the earth. He has come from the Father. And so while they're arguing about geography, Jesus starts arguing about theology. I, where I was born doesn't really matter in the long run. What you need to realize is I've come from God. And so in a sense, he's saying again, I am the Messiah. I'm the one who's come from God. He doesn't say that blatantly, but the people who are listening and paying attention are going to get that. They're going to know this is why the authorities are trying to arrest him, ultimately, or want to. The bigger issue for this crowd, like I said, not that they didn't understand that he had come from the Father, that even more bigger issue than that is he says the fact that you don't recognize that I come from the Father means that you don't even know the Father, He's dropped a bomb in the midst of their theology class there. We don't feel the weight of that. We can all agree. Yeah, he's the Messiah of God. He came from God. But in that crowd, they're going, this guy deserves to be arrested for saying these sorts of things. And now he's saying, we don't even know God. Does he not realize that we're all here in Jerusalem worshiping God? That's why we're here. To celebrate the fact that God has provided for us. He's provided for us. He continues to provide for us. We're trusting God, obviously. But Jesus is saying, but you don't. If you, if you understood rightly who God is, you would accept me as the one who has come from God. And you're missing it. They're worried about his family tree. He's trying to grab their attention with more important things. We can, the, the reality is we can only rightly know God through Christ. Christ has come to reveal him. That he is the end of the promises of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of those things. He is the one who has come that we might know God in his fullness. And so when we, when we hear that they're trying to arrest him, we go, well, well who is this? Like we said, that it seems at this point that the crowd, these local Jerusalemites, who understand kind of how the politics of that city work, they understand how the Sanhedrin works, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and all these sorts of things. Because the Pharisees and Sadducees disagreed theologically, We're going to see in a minute there's something that brings them kind of together here. the, The people of Jerusalem understand the politics of the day, and so they were like, okay, we hear what he's saying. If the authorities aren't going to go after him, then we'll just go after him. And so the crowd tries to arrest him, it seems, is what's going on here. It says, so they were seeking to arrest him. It seems to be the crowd there. It says, but no one laid a hand on him. So they understand. We understand why they're at that. Like, we can understand why this irritates them. They're at this most joyful celebration of the whole year. At the Feast of booths, The Feast of Tabernacles. There's a huge party raging going on. They're celebrating God's provision from the past. The harvest. Is just a, they're ready to kind of let down their hair and have a good time. And all of a sudden, here's this teacher in the temple saying, But you don't even know God. Like, if nothing else, we're mad that he's trying to spoil our party. But Jesus is committed to the truth, and he's speaking truth, and they try to arrest him. But they aren't able to. They aren't able to arrest him. Why? Because Jesus sort of goes Jedi Knight-like on them as they were trying to arrest him. And you know, the scripture simply says, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. It's almost like he creates this force field around himself that his enemies aren't able to kind of penetrate it reminds me of star wars and you know obi-wan kenobi told the stormtroopers these are not the drones that you're looking for you know mind control stuff i don't know what jesus is doing at this point but what we see is apparent it's not his time and they can't arrest him we we happen to know that i mean we know what's going on here it, it, from this part of the gospel of john from chapters five and six and in the seven that God is providentially hindering anyone from arresting Jesus until the time that God has ordained for that to happen. We happen to know, because we live on this side of history, we go over to look back at this, that that time comes in six short months at the celebration of the Passover. This celebration would have been taking place, this was the last feast of booze, before the Passover where Jesus was killed. And so we know it's only about six months away before his time comes. But here, his time hasn't come. And so we know that uh, what what we're simply called to make note of here is the fact that God is completely in control of the life and death of Jesus, just as he is in control of all creatures in all times. And so we call that the doctrine of providence. He was providentially hindered. We we have a doctrine related to that doctrine of providence. We've actually been talking about it in Sunday school recently. We moved on from it today, uh, sort of. But so if you're interested in some of these deeper theology things, I invite you to come to Sunday school where in the adult Sunday school we're discussing the Westminster Confession together, and a lot of it's challenging to us and challenging our presuppositions about God and ourselves and life in the world. But we're dealing with some of those things. But let's talk a little bit about what providence is. What do we mean when we talk about how God is? Providential and providentially moves in the lives of people and in here particular in particular in the life of Christ and the people who are trying to arrest him. Well, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines providence like this. It says, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So what it says is, God governs all things and all their actions. All things including us. Um, So how do we know that that's a good thing, that God controls all things, that we aren't in control of things, that God's in control of things? Well, how do we know if if the providential governor of all things is is a good governor, right? It depends on the character of the one governing. So God's providence in our lives, we can say it's a good thing because God is Perfectly holy, perfectly wise, absolutely powerful, all those things that it just said. We could also include the fact that God is perfectly loving and perfectly good. That's kind of summarized in the things that the the catechism says about it there. But we can demise that, that if God is good and loving and wise, so he always knows what is best in every situation because he's perfectly wise, and he's absolutely powerful, meaning that he's able to actually do the things that he wants to do and intends to do in every situation, and what he wants to do is good because his character is always loving and good, then, because those things are true, we can trust him to govern our lives. We can live at peace because there's a good and loving and powerful God that rules the universe and even rules our own small lives. But if God is governing everything, then what does that mean for the hard stuff in our lives? The suffering, and the sin, and the shame, and the fallness and the bro- all those things that, that are going. Well, the doctrine of providence also teaches us that the, the God is never the author of sin. He never sins, and he never causes us to sin, but we do live in a world where sin exists, in a fallen world, we would say, uh, where God does at times, either for our own humility or even for just his fatherly discipline in our lives, allow us us, even as children, and all humanity at times, to experience the pains that sin brings. Then He allows us to suffer even just the normal pains of the world, those things that aren't necessarily caused by sin, because there are some pains that are caused directly by sin, and some that are just caused by living in a fallen world, affected by sin. But he allows us to do those things. But how do we know if there's if God is good and loving, and yet there's bad things that happen, how do we know that God is good? But we know that He's good because when He sent His Son into the world to make all things right again, He didn't exempt Him from the suffering that all humanity shares. He, Jesus never sinned, but He did suffer, even to the point of death, because He took our sins upon Himself and He went to the, suffered to the point of death, even to death on the cross, as Philippians says, the most horrendous of all deaths uh, in, in that day. So we could see how our God is relatable and loving, even in our suffering, because he knows, because Christ has come into our world as a human and lived in all the pains of, that are common to man other than sin itself. And so he did suffer. He did die. And so he knows what suffering is and he embraced it so that one day we might actually never suffer again, if we trust in him and his sacrifice on our behalf. And so we're able to stand, I think we're able to stand on this side of it, I know I am, and thank God that he is in control and has a plan for my life and for this world in general because I can't imagine my life being left to the mercy of my goodness or my wisdom because I don't have the character or the righteousness to do what's right. And so God, in his love for us, has come and done these things. And so I thank God that he is in control of everything, especially my salvation. Because then we're able to step back and go, wait, God knows that we're sinners. He governs all the world. He's powerful to do anything. He could kill us at any moment. But in his mercy, he has sent his son to join our suffering and die for our sins. How amazing is this love? That God would send his own son to suffer the penalty of sin and death that we might live. My hope is that we'd never get over that. That would drive who we are. Drive what we are. How we are. And all of those sorts of things. But we've got to get back to the text. I've taken a little bit of detour there on providence. All right, so back to the text. So the first question is, where have you come from? And Jesus says, no, if you knew God, you would know that I've come from God. And the fact that you don't recognize that I came from God means that you don't actually know God. But what's clear is he's teaching, I came from God the Father. He's claiming to be the Messiah. But then the question is, he gets into talking about where he's going to go. The, the Pharisees, we said, are a segment of the Jewish leaders here. They hear the crowd muttering about Jesus possibly being the Messiah and how the, his, the lack of his arrest it might be a sign that the leaders actually believe his claims to be true. And so they go ahead and send some of their officers to arrest him. So the crowd couldn't arrest him. And they're like, well, we'll send the police then, basically. And so they send the officers of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, like I said, was a group made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they couldn't really agree on anything theologically. They just argued and argued and argued. And lots of debates were always between those two camps. But here, when it comes to Jesus, they're on the same page. This guy's a blasphemer, and we need to get him. And so they send their officers out to arrest Jesus. But as these officers arrive, they hear Jesus teaching. And Jesus seems to be speaking to the entire crowd gathered with the awareness that these officers and other religious leaders are are present there. So these comments seem to be addressed kind of more to them primarily. He tells them, knowing that they've come to arrest him, he tells them, I will be with you a little longer, And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. For where I am, you cannot come. And so he basically tells him, I'm going to be with you a little longer. We think that he's referring to the six months when he knows he's going to die and then ascend into heaven. And and then he'll be going to God. He's going to ascend in a bodily ascension into the heavens. Because he'll go back where he came from. To God who sent me, he would say. Now we know, like I said, we know how this played out. And it played out mostly like the Jewish religious leaders hoped that it would. They ultimately convicted him in a kangaroo court of sorts. They uh, they convicted him of blasphemy. They sentenced him to death. And they actually nailed him to a cross. In that moment, they're thinking, we've won. We've proven that this guy's not the Messiah. Because if he was the Messiah, God wouldn't have let this happen. That's got to be what they're thinking at that moment. And so they, they nailed him to a cross there alongside common criminals. They sentenced him to death. But... Notice that Jesus doesn't say here in this passage, you are going to get exactly what you want and you are going to send me to the grave or you're going to send me to the Father. No, he actually speaks with purpose. He says, Jesus proclaims that he is going to go to the Father. I am going to the Father. There's an intent and a purpose behind his words. You're not sending me anywhere. I'm going to do these things. This is going to happen on purpose. Jesus is going to do what he came to do. And it's going to be through the evil intentions of these men that it comes to pass. Between the Jewish leaders and the Romans, kind of getting together to do these things. Through their evil intentions, these things come to pass. But Jesus has given us a hint of what's going on behind the scenes. In a few chapters in John 10, 18, Jesus says this. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Remember the providence that we talked about a few minutes ago? Here it is on display again. Ruling and directing the life and the death of Jesus so that, in his love, he might accomplish the work that he came to do. Jesus goes on to tell them that where he is going, they cannot go. They'll seek for him, but they will not find him. Of course, Jesus is talking about ascending into heaven and going back to the Father to be with the God, with God who sent him, those sorts of things. The crowd is utterly confused. They don't get this on seemingly any level other than an earthly level. That they desperately need to hear and understand what Jesus is telling them. Jesus is explaining to them that because they have not received him as their Messiah, they have not understood that he is the one who has come from God to redeem them. Because of their unbelief, they will not share in his glory. They will not follow after him to be in the presence of God. And so he's telling people at a feast full of Israelites, of Jews, You, because of your rejection of me, are not going to get the inheritance of Abraham. You're not going to get the things that are promised to the people of God. So yeah, they want to kill him. There's a warning in Psalm 95 that this crowd needed to heed, and probably so do we. Let me read it for us. In Psalm 95, 6 through 11, here's what he says. "Oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his land. We read that often. We're familiar with those words. Here's what he goes on to say. He says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. Remember when the people grumbled and complained against God in the wilderness? That's what he's referring to. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So in a sense, he's saying, Your ancestors were just like you. They would seen the miracles. They'd seen the water come from the rock and the man to come, but yet they still complain. And he said, You've seen me heal people. You've seen me. I walked on water. I fed the 5,000, and yet you are like them. He says, For 40 years, I loathed that generation, meaning he sent them to. Remember, that whole generation died and didn't get to enter the promised land. He says, um, So this is God speaking back in in the Psalms. He says, for 40 years I loathed that generation and I said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Remember, that whole generation died, didn't go into the promised land. They didn't enter into that figurative rest that was meant to signify a a greater rest, right? The kingdom of God going to glory. The warning of Psalm 95, like we said, is particularly applicable to this crowd because they're gathered at this feast to celebrate God's provision for their ancestors in the wilderness. Because, like I said, the reason that they were in the wilderness to start with is because of their sin and the hardness of their hearts. So that entire generation passed away. Now Jesus is standing before a crowd of celebrants. He's gathered at the temple to revel in God's goodness. That's the purpose they're there. Yet, just like their ancestors long before, these people as well are hardened in their hearts, deafened in their ears, blind to the truth of the gospel. The crowd on this day descends into mocking again. They're sort of whining and complaining as well. Sorts. Because they say, oh, where's he going that we can't find him? They're whining. They're mocking him, I think. Oh, where's he going? Can he really go anywhere that we can't find him? This is craziness. They say, where is he going to go? Is he going to live among the Gentiles? Is he going to try to teach the dumb Greeks about about God? These people don't know how wrong and yet how right they are. For Jesus himself wouldn't physically go into all the world. He's going to die and then ascend 40 days later. But the apostles, those that he's trained and left behind, who went to his school of theology... Those who followed Jesus would indeed take the gospel into all the world. To Jews and Greeks and Gentiles. Just as God had promised Abraham, the father of all the Jews, his family would produce a savior that would be a blessing to the entire world. That's going to come to pass. These guys who think they understand all the things of God are mocking the Gentiles as being dumb and unworthy of the Messiah. But yet God's plan is to redeem people from every tongue and tribe and nation and language. And so many of the Jews in Jesus' day are blind to the beauty of the Savior, the one who's standing right before them, teaching with a wisdom that they can't even comprehend. May we not be like them. May we, the Gentiles being scorned by the Jews in this chapter, May we have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe the good news that this man, born as a baby in Jerusalem, raised in Galilee, came into the world to make God fully known, that we would believe and trust in Him, and that what is known about Him is that He is love, that in His love, God sent His only Son to die for all who would call on Him for salvation. Like we said, people from Every time, in every place, every tongue, and nation, and language. And so my hope for us is that we would receive his love and follow him in obedience. That our lives, because we know he is the Messiah, because we know he's true, because we know about the love that compelled him, that sent him to come, and now compels us out. That it would cause us to repent of our sins, to trust in Christ, to love our neighbor. Because we belong not to ourselves, but to the one who is providentially ruling all of our lives. The gospel is good news for us, to all who would have ears to hear. For It's good news for everyone who hears and believes that the Savior has come. That Christ, of his own accord, has laid down his life. That we may enter into... His eternal rest. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we need salvation. We can't save ourselves. We naturally don't have eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of the gospel. And so we ask you now, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to hear and understand, know and believe that you are our God and that we are your people only because you have sent your son to redeem us from our sinfulness to pay for our sins, to die for to take our death upon himself. Holy Spirit, work in us now. Only you can open the hearts and minds of people. And so we ask that you would open our hearts, maybe for, the, maybe for the billionth time, maybe for the first time today, to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who has come for us and for our salvation. Help us to put our faith and hope and trust in him alone. It's in his name, his glorious name that we pray. Amen.